0: We took a few weeks off from recording the new tours as millions of Americans have rightly focused their attention on the fight for racial justice and to end police violence. We're resuming our spotlight on Spike Lee this month at Rough Cut, and as part of that, we're kicking off with our previously scheduled dive into Edward Norton, the star of Spike's 25th hour. Next week, we'll have an episode devoted entirely to the man himself, Spike Lee. I'm Zach D'Amico.
1: I'm Carson Cook. And welcome to The New Auteurs,
0: a podcast where we take the critical framework from the golden era of cinema and apply it to
1: today's films and filmmakers. On each episode of The New Auteurs, we'll go deep on one director, writer, actor, or other filmmaker using a singular film as a case study in an attempt to understand their screen essence.
0: Today, we'll dive into the work of Edward Norton, both famous and infamous for his dedication to his craft as an actor. And we'll take a special look at his role as Mike Shiner in 2014's Birdman.
1: Joining us today to chat about, Ed, is Rough Cuts Sarah D'Amico. Hey Sarah.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, we're we're glad to have you on. So so what
0: what's your personal background with the magical auteur Edward Norton?
2: Uh well. It's a little unclear to me, actually, when I first discovered Edward Norton. It was either The Italian Job, which I watched back-to-back two times in a row because it's such a great movie. Was or... this in theaters
0: or just in know No, home? At,
2: okay. at home with my sister, yeah. Okay. Um, back when we rented videos from Blockbuster, actually. Um, so it was either that or The Illusionist. Um, I have a feeling it was probably The Italian Job because... The Illusionist is just a little bit more of a movie that I probably would have watched and then like immediately forgotten without knowing like Edward Norton, Paul Giamatti, you know Jessica Biel. Now I know that clearly stuck with
0: you eventually though. (laughs)
2: Teenage me, eh, didn't care. But yeah, and and I think as soon as I started to see more of Edward Norton's movies, I sort of you know fell in love with him and his acting. I mean, I think he's just phenomenal, and I love watching his work.
0: What was it about him that
2: he's a very intellectual actor and you know, he's constantly delivering lines that are not only like fast paced, but he understands what he's saying. It's not like he's just reading the script. He may, he really makes it come alive in a way that makes you believe in the character and believe in, in whatever it is he's doing. Um, I think it's in part a function of him just being a great actor, but also a function of the roles he chooses. What about you guys? I think
1: I first saw an Edward Norton performance with... Fight Club. I I believe that was the first exposure to him. And you know, like any, I think, teenage boy who first sees Fight Club, it's, there's something that's really electric about that movie and that performance. I think when you're younger, Brad Pitt can kind of overshadow norton in that movie but as uh, as you revisit there's a lot of nuance that both of them are really bringing to those characters that kind of is is more impressive the more the more times you see it
0: and it, well and it's interesting like i speak for myself and i also think most kids who are early teens you know junior high early high school in that if you are not re- very much into theater you may not be aware of the different acting methods and techniques and like be diving into that when you're watching movies you're just taking them in and responding to them on a very visceral level. And both of the movies you two named, and then the movie that I associate most with him from growing up is Rounders, but in all of those, like, he's not the guy. When I watched Rounders, I wasn't like, great, well, gotta see Edward Norton. It was like Matt Damon. And as much as Edward Norton is the lead, like Brad Pitt was the superstar back then. And he's barely in the Italian job in terms of like screen time yeah. versus like Mark Wahlberg or Charlize Theron. So I think it's interesting that like, he maybe stuck with us all a little bit but like never as the lead he always was just that guy who turned in a really good performance and he wasn't the number one role but he he just like was the guy that stuck with
1: you kind of and then you know when you're when you're younger and you're starting to develop this kind of oh i'm i'm into movies he's kind of the guy you can throw out too as your, well, I really like, I like it. Edward Norton. <laughs> um. yeah. yeah,
0: that's how you show off in like the circle when they ask everyone's favorite actor and mm-hmm. people are thrown mm-hmm. out like, yeah,
2: yeah. That's- George
0: Clooney and you're like, oh, Edward Norton. Yeah,
2: He's perfect for that too because everybody knows him once you're like, oh, he's the guy in, you know, The Italian Job and Rounders and Fight Club. And they're like, oh yeah, that guy. But he's definitely not the first person anyone would right. name. Right, right. Except for, you know. But. like nerds like us but
0: sure. yeah i mean so in my experience with rounders like i, I don't know that i realized this at, at the time again i didn't think about acting methods but i almost saw actors as falling into like two buckets either i see them and i'm like oh that's matt damon being matt damon being mike mcdermott or jason bourne or whoever or like oh that's worm it's so, like I, I probably saw rounders 20 times before i saw another ed norton movie and it was all in the course of like two months when, once I discovered rounders and poker like at the exact same time, but still I saw him as worm, and I never saw Matt Damon as like Mike McDermott. I just you know, and even later on he was like i forget his name in in the Italian job it's like Steve Frizzelli or something but like that that's who he was, and like at the time, I didn't really associate that with with method acting or inhabiting a character. I was just like oh yeah, no, he he's Worm, he's Steve, he's, you know, whoever. Whereas other people were, oh, he's Brad Pitt, oh, he's Matt Damon, oh, he's George Clooney. And I've developed the vocabulary to talk about that in, like, a more in-depth way, but there's something about, like, the childhood version of that that's kind of a pure description of him as an actor and that he doesn't have at
2: those characters. On oh, the boy. point of uh, method acting, you know, Edward Norton is kind of known for being a method actor, you know, not to the extent of, like, Daniel Day-Lewis, but... People kind of uh, talk about him in that way, and it's interesting. I was reading some interviews with him, and he um, he pushes back on that a little, and he kind of jokes about it. He he's aware, I think, of the stereotypes, but he was saying that he really feels often very lost and doesn't really understand like who the character is and what the character is doing at first. And a lot of times, it's like the external things, you know, putting on the clothes and being on the set and things like that that really helps him get into the character. And I think um, it's interesting because I don't think he considers himself like a method actor in the way that we sort of think of it. So I was just interested. Do do you have thoughts on on whether or not you would consider him a method actor?
0: I don't know that I would if it wasn't for the fact that I have read so much about him as a method actor. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard for me to divorce the way that I think about his acting from just the way the cultural osmosis of the way everyone talks about him as an actor, and like you said, everyone talks about him as a method actor and he's aware of the reputation. So it's honestly hard for me to divorce the two. And now that you say it, like I had no idea that he had pushed back against that. But now that you say it, I'm sort of questioning, okay, what do I actually think about him as an actor? And I do, as much as I see him as his characters, like I do see through lines across his performances that's like, oh, that's Ed Norton, that's the way Ed Norton acts which you might get less of in like more of a true method actor because they're like the goal of a method actor is that sort of naturalism and just like leaving any of your identity as an actor behind and becoming the character. And I do see like, there are strands of like, Oh, that's, that's his acting style. Okay. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I don't, necessarily loop him into the same category as you know day lewis or walking phoenix does some of the the more what we think of as stereotypically method work i see norton as someone who is less concerned about you know i have to be the character at all times rather he, he is more you know really trying to think a lot about the character. I think what you said about intellectualism, Sarah, is is really interesting. I think he's often in his own head about what the character is going to be, just kind of anecdotally based on how he, you know, does a lot of work on the scripts of his movies. Sometimes when it's not not entirely wanted, but he, um, you know, he contracts to do the rewrites and, as he's said, the editing room. Um, I think he is really focused on the art, less of, you know, I have to be this character, but but how the whole presentation comes together.
0: Well, and, and he has this line in Birdman that stuck with me where he says, does anyone give a shit about truth except me? And his character in that is certainly seen in some ways as like commentary on him as an actor, but he his character in that is so focused on truth, whereas method acting is as I understand it, is focused on finding that truth through, like, sense memory and tapping in on, like, beyond an intellectual level, where he's like, he is thinking through the truth of his character, and then once he gets it, he plays it, versus just feeling his way through a scene as the character would feel. And there's, like, there's a, even though that sometimes ends up in the same result or the same, maybe, you know, difficulty to deal with on set, it's a slightly different process, it feels like.
1: Yeah, I think that that sequence in the movie where he, he complains about his, his real gin being replaced in, in a live scene, I think is really, it feels like a commentary of how that method acting goes too far. I think that's very self-aware that, you know, no, you don't really have to be drunk to perform a scene like that. Um, I think he's right. very, very aware of that. And, and he is very aware of that.
0: And my instinct is that, like, based on the, the quote that you just gave, is that he would sort of say that he doesn't need to be drunk to play a drunk guy, but he needs to understand exactly what it is like to be that
1: drunk guy, and then he can go play it. I mean, when I when I think about him, when I kind of think about his style, I, I think of him as actually a very theatrical actor. He has a a, a stage presence that I think really carries over to film there's pros and cons there i think he can get really big at times uh that uh, a necessary aspect sometimes for uh, for a theater actor but he also is able to tap into kind of this heightened emotionality that can really be an electricity in a movie where where sometimes there is kind of that more uh search for Naturalism and and in the stage everything has to be a little bigger to play to the whole room and and I think he does a really good job of tapping into that and he he started acting on the stage uh, like many like many great actors but but that's clearly I think something that has stuck with him.
0: So Sarah, what would you do? You have one sentence that you would use to describe Edward Norton as an actor?
2: I think I would probably identify him just as an intellectual actor, I think, which I have already said, so I don't have too much to add to that. I just think, you know, and maybe this goes back to his background a little bit. He, uh, he majored in history at Yale, you know, not something you get from every actor. His parents, I think, were very involved in his life. His mom was an English teacher. Um, his dad, I think, was also a lawyer maybe, but he, anyway, he, he, I think he just really brings a heightened level of awareness to his roles. I think he really tries to be smart about the roles he chooses and also the way he plays his characters. And Carson something you said really uh, stuck with me as well which was um, he does have this kind of electricity and I can think of a moment in pretty much every single movie I've seen him in where he has that kind of electric moment you know like in 25th hour it's when he's standing in front of the mirror and he's you know going through all the different groups in new york city that he has a problem with you know um and birdman that's um when he first comes on the set and he's like directing the director which is another whole funny thing we can get into but american history x obviously there's several of those kind of moments and i i just think that's sort of his style. When I think of Edward Norton, I think of those moments and I think of kind of the, the fast-paced scenes yeah, the, that he has. The,
0: like word that. I, the word that I like thought about that I think is exactly that is intensity. Yeah, like, I feel like everything he chooses to do, even if it's playing a relaxed, like a laid-back character, he is playing it with a level of intensity that for me as a viewer, I can't help but be interested in the scene. And... Whether it works or doesn't work, or whether I'm interested in his character or like his character or hate his character, I am always glued to him as an actor and what he's going to do next because I just feel like—and to go to your point about his awareness—I feel like everything he does is extremely purposeful. And again, whether or not it was like the choice that I would have made or some or like another great actor would have made, I know that he's making it for a reason. So I'm just like glued to the screen to see what choice he made next. And I, not all of that is going through my mind. What's going through my mind is, oh my god, this is. Intense. This is. I, I can't miss what he, whatever he does next. Whatever happens next. I, and I think that's
1: probably the best thing about him as an actor. I think that even that even plays into what I think about when I think about this this theatrical element is that he's he's taking swings. He often feels like a risky actor on screen. It's not a live performance, but it often feels like it could be, and you don't know where exactly it's going to go, and whether when he swings, he's going to hit. Or miss, but but it is kind of that air of of the risk that really keeps drawing you in.
0: It, it feels a little bit like me as someone who has never done cocaine that he did like a little bit of cocaine, just like a small bit right before every scene, and you never know exactly how it's going to manifest itself, like what version of of Norton is going to come. But it's always going to be like he he chose something and then he's going for it. He's going for that version of his character that he decided on, like either then or an hour earlier or a week earlier when he was studying his character, but like you said, he's going for it.
2: So one of the interesting things about Edward Norton is the trajectory of his career. So when he sort of got discovered in Hollywood, it was in um, 1996 when he was in the movie Primal Fear. And his performance in that movie, I haven't seen it, but apparently was just really, really solid. He came out of that, everyone was talking about him like, oh, this is the next guy to watch. Like he's the next big thing. Um, I think he was 30 at the time, so still fairly young. And then after that, he just got movie after movie after movie. It was People versus Larry Flint in 1996. Then he had Everyone Says I Love You with Woody Allen in 1996. Rounders in 98. American History X in 98. Fight Club, 25th Hour, The Italian Job, The Illusionist, you know, in the, the early, or the mid-90s to the early 2000s. But then he kind of, I don't want to say fell off the map because that's a little strong, but he really just sort of began to be a little more selective about the projects he was in and really kind of slowed his career down, and I think purposefully. But just wondering if you have thoughts about that compared to the careers of other actors who, you know, have really taken off but then continued on their trajectory, maybe more like an Emma Stone.
0: Well, you know, I mean, it fits. On the one hand, it fits with the way he seems to treat acting and the way he talks about it as an opportunity to explore a new character and to learn and to stretch his limits as an actor and to try something new. And to the extent that like those opportunities aren't coming across his desk or he's not finding or or, like these roles that he feels he has to do, it makes sense. And I think it also like Edward, I don't remember ever seeing or watching an interview with Edward Norton other than for prepping for this. Popping up on the news. I mean, obviously, he does promotion in part because he has to for his movies, but it really does feel like he has acting as his career in the way most people in America have their careers, and then he has the rest of his life. And he doesn't feel the need to make that rest of his life part of his public persona. It's the only times I see him is when I go to a movie that he's in. And so it would make sense that if the perfect roles aren't coming around, he's just, he's still living his life outside the public view and just waiting for the next movie that he really wants to do
1: yeah i think i think that is uh th- that's a good way to frame it i mean like you like you said sarah he he gets his first movie in 96 i think he's actually even younger i think he's more like 26 27 in when he's primal playing fear like a, an 18 year old and he's playing someone really young it is it, it, I, I think it's a pretty great performance it gets him an oscar nod and he's in theater before that, and, and he transitions into Hollywood. He you know, he releases three movies in ninety-six, like you said, and then he pretty quickly starts to assert a, a certain level of creative control with it, which I think is really fascinating. So again, first movie he makes is in nineteen ninety-six. And then American History X is in ninety-eight. And in that one, he is he's working on the script pretty extensively. There is a whole kind of combative atmosphere that takes place after the movie wraps shooting in particular where the cut that director tony k delivers the studio doesn't like it norton doesn't like it and essentially the studio winds up i believe giving him final cut over the movie which is very strange i think especially for someone who only has a handful of movies under his belt who's only been in hollywood for three years he I think delivers the final cut of that movie for the most part. There's still a lot of bad blood between him and the director. He moves to Fight Club in '99, which by all accounts is a very collaborative environment, particularly between Fincher and Pitt and Norton. And then by 2000, he's he directs his first movie. So four years after he breaks into Hollywood, he's directed a movie. He's continuing to do rewrites. I think he does uncredited rewrites on on Frida the the Selma Hayek. Uh, OPEC, and then like you said he kind of slows down starts picking picking and choosing a little more a, a movie that i think is really interesting in terms of his thinking about him as an actor is kingdom of heaven the 2005 ridley scott movie it, in that movie he plays the the, the leper king in the it's a, a film about the crusades and and he spends the whole movie in a in a mask uh, in a full mask, you never see his face, and he actually, at, he did not want to be credited in the movie at all. He wanted it to remain an uncredited performance. They eventually did credit him, but I, I think that is fascinating because I think I had thought of him more as a little bit more of someone with an ego, but that's a different kind of ego, I guess. To to say, yeah, don't credit me in the movie. I'm going to turn a performance, very good performance. You're never going to see my face. It's not a movie star ego. It's an I'm an artist.
0: Yeah, know? it's a creative ego versus a personal ego, which is which is like one, one thing that I do think is really interesting because I know that there was bad blood for a while between Tony Kay and Norton, but like I had read a couple of quotes from Tony Kay and then from other folks who had worked with him but had basically butted heads with him on the set of movies. And years later, a lot of them for like an article basically were like, I'd love to work with him again. Like I, I would, maybe not love, but like I would be absolutely willing to work with him again. And it sort of comes from this perspective of if you are good enough and if you put in the work, you can afford to be like a little bit more of a creative ego. And if you put if you put yourself in the backseat when it comes to like the personal aspect and promoting it and things like that, if you're not a jerk about taking credit for everything, you're just a jerk about the work. And again, it, it feels as though even though he may be difficult to work with in the moment for at least some people, they still respect him as an actor. And there's certainly a question of whether it, it can so easily veer from, oh, he's just trying to get the best out of both himself and his film and his collaborators. And that veers quickly into becoming a bully on set in a way that creates a lot of problems, especially for young performers and young women on sets, feeling like, you know, The guys coming in and telling you exactly what to do and taking over and there's a very fine line there and not having been on any sets I obviously don't know what line he falls on and it's interesting to you know to what extent did he stop working in part because of his own pickiness over roles but maybe in part because people heard stories and people talked about how difficult he was to deal with and so maybe he also just wasn't getting as many offers so that he wasn't
1: finding a lot that he wanted it to do. At least, at least for the big stuff, I suppose, um, the the kind of big movies where there is necessarily less room for him to come in and and experiment and and take more control as an actor, as opposed to you know the director or the producer or whatever, whatever it may be. And it feels
0: like he slowed down pretty quickly after the like the Incredible Hulk feels like the peak of his. A, where he slowed down a lot after that, but also sort of the peak of the creative control problems because he wasn't running up against a director or a, a mid-budget film. He was running up against a massive studio tentpole that did not have a guaranteed chance of success. And maybe that was the point where his creative ego finally hit a wall it couldn't crack.
2: Yeah, I think from the interviews that I read with him, he really seems to care a lot about the output, going to sort of his like creative ego, I think he likes to work with people who he can collaborate with and who are open to having an actor come in and say like, Hey, look, I think this is, this would be better played this way. Can we try that? Or, you know, can we try rewriting these lines or can we try having this different theme or something like that? I think he is a lot more of a collaborative artist. And I think the fact that someone like Spike Lee worked with Edward Norton and really admired him and loved working with him says a lot about him as an actor. I think if he were, you know, and and as Zach was saying earlier, the fact that people who have worked with him have said that he would do so again. I think he's kind of one of those people who like, you put your work in front of him. You're really proud. You're so excited. You're about to make this movie. And he's like, okay, here's the million things that are wrong with it. And it's hard for a director or the screenwriter or whoever to like, get that feedback because art is such a personal thing. But I think, you know, for the people who can appreciate his gift and what he has to contribute, I think it actually makes or has the potential to make uh, a project even more powerful than it would be without him on the set. But I definitely get that that's a hard ego to have, you know, to to work with, especially if it's something that's really personal to you or that is a project that you've just been working on forever.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially about Spike. Like Spike does not seem like the type to just a either like roll over and say yeah you know like let's almost let him take control of his movie like that's not going to happen he's going to listen to him but he's also going to make his voice and his vision heard and made but he also doesn't seem like the type to not talk about a problematic actor on set who is difficult to work with and who creates issues like he has shown in his career he is going to he's going to talk about that stuff when it happens and he's going to call it out. Uh, because not a lot of people are willing to, and he is not going to worry about you know what blowback there might be that Spike Lee is calling out Edward Norton. Like he's just going to tell the truth as he sees it. And the fact that he, at least as far as I've seen, he has not criticized Edward Norton, and it sounds like he enjoyed working with him. I do think that says a lot, insofar as a single collaboration can say that much
1: about your whole career. Yeah, I th- I th- it seems like he has, he has mellowed some in in recent years in terms of um, needing to have as much. Creative control over a project, a little more willing to give himself over to a director, especially if it's one he he really respects. I think I think it's interesting, for instance, that he uh, has worked now several times in the past decade with Wes Anderson, who I think we generally think of as someone who has kind of an uncompromising vision. I'm not I'm not sure how much you know room there is on a Wes Anderson set for actors to kind of do their own thing. But but from what's on the screen, you tend to think maybe not not a ton. But he seems to have worked with him just fine.
2: That's interesting too. You know, I think the people that he says he really admires, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, Spike Lee, all of those people have really strong artistic visions in a movie. And so I wonder if Edward Norton works better with people who are also strong minded about something, you know, I feel like he respects kind of the vision and that creative ego in someone else.
0: Yeah, well, and, and it, it goes towards, right, because there's always this question when someone does start to maybe have, like, sharp elbows about how to do a movie. Is he looking for someone who he can just take control from? Someone who, like, kind of doesn't have a ton of ideas and he can just take over and be like, we're doing the movie my way? Or is he, like you said, Sarah, is he looking for a collaborator? And to the extent that he respects people who clearly have very strong backbones and strong ideas about how to make the movie, It it showed that, you know, maybe his goal isn't to take over the movie and do it his way. It's just to have his voice heard in the process and respected and to be able to work with other really smart, you know, visionary filmmakers who can create something together. Right.
2: I mean, and that, so the way that he and Spike Lee kind of hit it off, uh, Edward Norton saw Do the Right Thing, I think when he was in college is when that came out. And he wrote Spike Lee a letter. And was like, hey, this was awesome. I would love to work with you on a project. And they just kind of went back and forth for a while. Um, I think they got dinner one night. They like met up at a Super Bowl. I mean, you know, whatever, just kind of off and on connecting with each other. And then finally, you know, Spike Lee got the 25th hour script and he immediately thought of Edward Norton and was like, this is a guy I want to okay. work with. And I think. That, you know, Edward Norton reaching out, writing a letter to this director, you know, and just being like, hey, this is a really incredible, impressive project. I I really think that goes to his style of not just acting, but collaboration as well, like you were saying. I think it's really um, unique and impressive. That's a little biased, maybe, because I love Edward Norton so much. But, you know, it's not something you see every day in Hollywood.
0: No, and and so to, to if we want to transition into talking about Birdman he, because he did the same thing with Inritu, the director of Birdman, he had seen several of his films, and he was like, "This guy's making films like nobody else is making them and he knew him from like the, you know by that time Edward Norton was obviously pretty big in Hollywood, so he knew him from a social scene and he basically said, "I love the films you're making i'd love to be in one pretty much sight unseen and then I guess he did do a reading for it, but basically he's, and then he sat down with dinner to with Inrizu and was like, I'm not, I'm not leaving here without this role. Like, you've got to cast me. But it's also interesting to know that he had told him beforehand that he wanted to be in one of his movies. So it's interesting to think about, okay, to what extent was this role written specifically with Edward Norton in mind? Because I think there are, are certainly signs and there's some meta commentary around his role uh, and how it is, you know, relates to the rest of his career that Inritu had him in mind because he had written him and, or he had told him, I want to work with you.
1: Although although what's interesting is from, from what I saw, Josh Brolin was actually originally cast in the Mike Shiner role and had to drop out for scheduling conflicts. So I, I do wonder, it does feel very specifically like it is written for Norton in a way. So I do wonder whether there's a meta commentary, you know, that, that came about in a rewrite or whether that was there. From the start. Or given I don't, given I don't how much know. we know he
0: collaborates with yes. his directors, I suspect. Well, and it's that first scene in Birdman, I have to like point out, like everyone here has been talking about how it's creative ego versus personal ego. And that first scene in Birdman, when when Mike Shiner joins the cast and the scene is just not working, Michael Keaton's character is Rigan is the director of the play and he's also starring in it. And there's this scene that just isn't working well and Edward Norton's character, Mike Shiner comes in and he's like, all right, let's jump into it. And, and Reagan is sort of like, Oh, you know, where do you want to start? And he's like, no, just go, let's just go. Let's, let's get going. And they work through the scene and throughout it, Mike Shiner is just sort of saying, Oh, what, what if you tried this? Ooh, try it this way. No man. Like, like cut all of that nonsense away. Just like get to the heart of it. Stop saying the same thing three times. Like, you know, and he's basically directing the director. And then right at the end of the scene, after it works incredibly well, and you see that Michael Keaton Keaton's character is sort of like, "Oh crap, he's totally right." Right at the end of that, Ed Norton's character says, "So what do you, what do you think? Does that work, director? Does that work, boss?" I think he calls him boss, and it's and it just shows like he has that creative control, but then he also is like, "But it's your decision," and so which part of that that is like is thoughtful, and it's like that's the only way I can get away with having a creative ego is to not have a personal one. But also, it, it just sort of seems to speak to Edward Norton as a person, and that like he he really is just trying to find the best possible scene, and then he understands that like he needs to take a, maybe a little bit of a backseat in terms of taking the credit for
1: it. it. It's really funny because that what goes down in that scene is almost exactly how uh, Tony K on American History X and Brett Ratner on Red Dragon describe working with Norton. They talk about it as. He is so much more articulate than me. I, I had trouble saying what I wanted to do and he could just verbalize what he wanted to do and argue better than me. and then that's how we would wind up doing it because I couldn't, I couldn't talk my way out of it the way he could.
2: That's phenomenal. I love that.
0: So, so what do we think of Birdman? Birdman is obviously it, it obviously won a lot of Academy Awards. I think there has been a little bit of a backlash. For those of us on Film Twitter, in which people think it was overrated and overappreciated, especially because it went up against a Film Twitter favorite in Boyhood. So, what did what did we all think on rewatch?
1: I mean, I have always really liked Birdman. I think it's very good. I think you can like Birdman and Boyhood, and I think they're both very nope, good movies in very to different like ways. You like one and hate
0: the other. That's um, some of the option.
1: No, I think it's I think it's a movie that is is pretty smart, is really technically impressive in, in a way that I, I get that the kind of one-take movie is falling out of vogue pretty quickly and, and often is kind of seen as as a stunt. I think it works so well in this movie as a vision of the theater and the theatricality that, that the movie is playing with. I, I, I think Keaton is doing close to career-best work there, um, as well as the the rest of the cast. Everyone is very good. I think it's a – I, I kind of think it's a great movie.
2: I mean, I will just say I would have voted for it over Boyhood ten times over. Well, we know but your feelings the- about <laughs> Richard Linklater.
0: We have problems with your feelings about Richard Linklater.
2: That's a story for a different podcast, yeah. perhaps. Um, but no, I mean, I completely agree with you, Carson. I thought technically it was a phenomenal movie. I mean, the, not just the camera work, but also like the the use of percussion and, um, the way they just made the movie feel like it was always, oh, there was always something going on. There was always something happening. You know, it was just a really busy movie, but in between the busyness, you got all these flashes of, you know, personal issues and vulnerabilities and insecurities and all the things that come with being a theater actor and with being, you know, an older theater actor where you're kind of losing maybe your popularity or your abilities and your careers kind of at the end. And, you know, I I just thought it was really good. I think my biggest beef with the movie, if you want to call it that, is that it kind of just beat you over the head with its theme a little too much. It was a little heavy-handed on that, and I could have used a little more subtlety, I suppose. Nuance. A little a little more nuance. But, yeah, I mean, and the acting, of course, was, was phenomenal, too.
0: Yeah, so. I mean, so I think, like, the way I think about it is that it's, like, when a movie wears its heart on its sleeve, it's just so easy to make fun of it. It's so easy to just be, like the sort of ironic cynic who makes fun of anything that is melodramatic or that is very obvious about its influences and what it cares about. And I think the thematic pieces, the things that the movie and Inaritu is trying to say are like the core of its heart. So they are worn on its sleeve. So he says them again and again through different mouthpieces. And it's just, it's very easy to criticize that and say that like, yeah, we get it, Inuritu, Like we didn't, you know, this, I think there's a ton of merit to a movie like that. And I think when you package it in a technically proficient and also channel those messages and those feelings through performances that are, I thought, incredibly authentic and moving, like it works because cause that type of thing, that could, like that script could have fallen flat if it had different actors or a different director. But I, like, I think he, he walks the line for virtually the entire movie, occasionally veering into roll your eyes, melodrama and quotes that are a little bit absurd. When Edward Norton tells Emma Stone's character, I forget the exact line, but I wish I could pull your eye sockets out of your head so that I could see New York city as I saw it as a 20 as, as year old. Like that was a bit much, but Edward Norton pulls it off because he's Edward Norton. And there are so many moments there where it's like, if 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 one of 98% of actors had delivered that line, I would have walked out of the theater probably. But because, like, I think they pull it off and that they invest in the characters enough, but the movie invests in the characters and the actors that like, it, it, it is on the right side of that line for most of the movie.
1: Yeah, I think, and that kind of thing, like we've talked about, the the movie is is pretty self-aware. And at time, I think it, it has a lot of feeling for its subjects, but it can be unsparing. And I think like lines like that, that are, that that feel a bit over the top. I mean, I think that's, there's something to that about how over the top acting is as a profession and and how that his, his whole life is, is a little over the top. He's so invested uh, this character and in the idea of, art and his profession that it never leaves him. He is, he is a very method actor in that way. And that he's almost always playing a role of some sort.
0: That's one thing is that in a movie that feels like it's self-aware about a lot of what it's saying, but not necessarily all of it, it, it sometimes it was difficult for me to figure out like, is this painfully stereotypical or is it commenting on the painfully stereotypical? And in one version, you're like, this is terrible. How did someone let this get on the screen? And in another version, you're like, I get that. That's smart. That's well done. And when you're, you're unwilling to make it so obviously one or the other, it's easy to just interpret it in a negative way. So what do, we, what do we think of like this movie as an example of Ed Norton, the actor, Ed Norton, the auteur of his performance?
1: I mean, like we've kind of been talking about, it's interesting because this movie seems to be less a reflection of Norton's acting style and more of a reflection in this character of who he is as an actor as in the profession of being an actor and what it means to be an actor which I think is really fascinating and it is this this theatricality and this need for control that uh, that I think we we associate with him to a certain degree but I do also think that it it, it does draw on his his strengths, which I think have always been in playing this this emotionally fragile masculinity in a way that that is something that you can pity, but something that you can see as really real and really connect to in in your own way. And I think that does a lot of uh, a lot there's a lot of work here to make that. A, a defining aspect of his character, and he really brings that to it. That scene that we were talking about with uh, with Emma Stone's character on the roof um, it is really a a melancholy scene, and it's very different you know, from from how the actor has presented himself earlier in the movie. He he becomes vulnerable in that that moment without necessarily losing some of the bravado, but he is he is vulnerable, and I think that that Norton is is someone who has done that throughout his career and can really um really makes that sing.
2: Yeah, that I, I completely agree. I think every movie I've seen with him to some extent I think his character is like a sleaze ball or you know kind of uh too you know too much bravado, too too much of an ego. There's something to dislike, but then he always turns in a performance where you also feel empathetic um for whatever the character is going through. So, you know, in American History X, by the end, you see the humanity in this guy who is a neo-Nazi and is, you know, definitely used to believe in things that I think none of us would even dream of believing in, right? In Birdman, he is this actor who just uh, is so full of himself. He treats his girlfriend kind of like crap and, uh, you know, tries to have sex with her on stage and uh, is up kind of flirting with with the director's daughter, but then he has this empathetic moment where he's like, you know, I kind of wish I could see the world in the way that you do, because I miss that. I miss being young. I miss being able to see the world with fresh eyes. I just think there's something to that, to be able to play someone who is maybe not super likable, but, but still connect with the audience. And, and I think he's really brilliant at doing that.
0: Yeah. And I think like I I almost have seen, have noticed he does it in very specific moments in movies. So like you mentioned, American History X, there is one moment where he sits on the steps after he has sort of quote-unquote publicly said that he has disavowed everything he used to believe in, and he sits on the step with, with his brother, his brother who had followed in his footsteps, and he's telling him, like, it's not right, man. Like, you've got to get out of this. And in Birdman, there's that moment, but there's also the one where uh, Riggin tells him falsely that he used to be abused by his father, and all of a sudden, complete jerk, Mike Shiner turns into, oh my God, man, I didn't know. I'm, I'm so sorry, and he's, like you said, he's empathetic to other people. And in Rounders, his character Worm is a complete degenerate, and he is a leech off of his friend, Mike, and he just tries to get convince him to get back into poker after he quit for his girlfriend, for his life, for his like future. He just tries to get him back in it, tries to pawn some money off him. And then like later in the movie, he has this moment where he's retreated to a basketball court uh, at a Catholic school. He's hiding from the people he owes money. And he just talks about like his history with this guy, Mike. I mean, one thing they talk about is the fact that he, basically the two of them got in trouble in school together and Ed Norton's character took to fall. And there's this one moment where you see the empathy, but like he has to have somehow showed you flashes of it while being a complete jerk for the prior hour so that when that happens, it's actually believable. Like there's a lot of versions where he tries to pull that off and you're like, yeah, I don't buy that at all. But if he showed little pieces of it here and there that you barely notice, then all of a sudden it comes and you're like, I spend an hour thinking there's no way I could like this guy. There's no way I could empathize with this guy. And every time he proves me wrong, every time Edward Norton pulls off that slowed down emotional scene.
1: So we've, we've talked here a lot about uh, collaboration and, and Norton as a collaborator. And, and on this podcast, um, we, we often talk about collaborators that help exemplify these auteurs' identities. And I'm curious whether there's anyone uh, in Birdman, either in front of the camera or behind the camera, who, uh, who you think exemplifies Norton's identity as an auteur.
0: So I, I almost wanna say Inaritu as someone who has a very clear vision as a filmmaker and he clearly collaborated with Norton just based on what Sarah was saying earlier in the way that he admires people like PTA and Wes Anderson and Spike Lee. But the, the, the one, I think Michael Keaton playing a former superhero actor exemplifies the type of actor that Norton seems to like to work with. I mean, especially when you look at his early work before he fully became like a leading man carrying a movie by himself. And it doesn't seem like that is necessarily what he loves to do the most. Like he worked with Brad Pitt and he worked with Damon and, you know, with Richard Gere in Primal Fear. And he seems to like to work off someone who is both a big name, but also is sort of playing a straight man. Robert De Niro's character, certainly not like, you know, he's certainly an, an unbelievable actor, but in the score he's playing a little bit of a straight man. And he's getting the attention, and it just lets Edward Norton do his thing. It Lets him be a little bit weird and a little bit on edge and bring the sort of like electricity to the scene and then leave and he doesn't have to worry about all the spotlight and the attention. he can just like act and work off of that like big name that straight man and In this movie, it's Michael Keaton playing Regan that sort of plays that role for him
1: actually kind of related. I think of. Manuel Lubetsky and the cinematography in this movie and and this this you know faux one take and how that format maximizes that theatrical energy that I think Norton has, and it really kind of frees him to play to the whole room to kind of feel like he's just there in the moment back on a stage in, in a way that that feels really realistic and like he is doing theater again. I think that's the energy, like I said up top, that he he really has for me. And I think that filming him in that way really brings that out in a way that that it doesn't always come out.
0: I think that energy would do really well in a Sorkin movie. I don't know that he would like playing the type of character that Sorkin writes, but I think he would crush that dialogue because of the, like, he... Is incredibly fast-paced and just like connected to
1: what he's saying. I mean, I, you can see him. I think probably you know if he was a little bit younger, playing the Sean Parker in the Social Network, and bringing that that edginess to to that role.
0: I like, I've, I'm, frankly, the last 10 years, I've liked his cameos more than anything, where he just like pops up in Sausage Party or in Alita Battle Angel. It feels like he's just having a ton of fun, like at this point in his career. It's either Wes Anderson, a movie he makes himself, or fun cameos. Actually, I, I, do, I do wanna mention one more thing from Birdman, and that is he has a line where Emma Stone's character asks him, why do you act like a dick all the time? And then she says, you don't, you really don't care if people like you. And he says, not really. And that's just, that's that, like, I think I looked at Sarah when we were watching that and I was like, oh, that's, yeah, that's just Ed Norton, huh? Like that's, that he probably just like add, you know, they ad-libbed that in the middle of the scene or he added it because like, that just fits in so well with both his character and the image that he puts out about himself as a person.
2: Same with the quote when he's walking down the street with Michael Keaton and they, he says, popularity is the slutty cousin of prestige. I think that's similar, you know, sort of exemplifies his approach to movies. I think he isn't about like the big Marvel movies with the exception of the Hulk, set that aside, you know, or doing anything that's going to make him like the next Brad Pitt or the next George Clooney. I think he's more choosy and, and picks films that are to him more challenging or interesting.
0: He also and- feels just smart enough and just smarmy enough to actually have said that to someone on a film set. Like a like one someone from the studio came down and was like, We need to make fifty thousand opening weekend. Like if this isn't popular, we're all screwed. And you know, he just delivered that line, like came up with it on the spot sure. and actually thought that it would go over well with the studio.
2: In defense of motherless Brooklyn, probably. <laughs>
0: right, right, right. Probably said it over the course of twenty years trying to get motherless Brooklyn made.
1: I mean, not to go down this this rabbit hole, but when he did a Marvel movie, he did the incredible Hulk. He signed on to that movie with the agreement that he could rewrite the script and he rewrote the script and he worked with the director. And apparently they turned in, you know, a 135 minute cut that they loved and was a lot bleaker and started with him trying to kill himself and a whole, a whole thing in the studio, cut it down and uh, to, At least the you know, under time. two hours. Jeez. Yeah. So, I mean, even when he is doing something that is, popular there is still he he seems very focused on this idea of creative integrity and and that's really kind of the thing that drives him whether it may be whether we may think it's a little misplaced or he's overdoing it that does seem to be the thing that that drives him
0: so so who do you feel as like an actor or even maybe as as not as an actor as a a different auteur who do you see as being you know comparative to that Either that mindset in how he chooses his roles or the intensity, the electricity that we talked about in terms of his actual style as an
1: actor. The two people that really came to mind for me, one is is a generation or so before him, the other is a little a little closer to a contemporary, but still a little older, is Al Pacino and Sean Penn. And Interesting. The the two of them, and, and I I've been banging this drum, but The two of them, I think have this really strong combination of theatrical energy combined with kind of heightened emotional intensity and, and they, all those actors can go, can go really big, but they can use going big in such a way that makes it feel more real than it might be otherwise. And to really get across these authentic emotions. Do you think Ed Norton could pull off Okay so two two scenes in particular cuz I considered Al
0: Pacino but one of the things that held me back from naming him was I felt like if you imagine like their acting energy put into a Tupperware container it feels like both of their containers are full all the time but it and like the lid is rattling but it feels like with Al Pacino the lid just comes off sometimes and it doesn't feel like that for me with Ed Norton like he just totally loses control ever so like I don't do you think Ed Norton could play Sonny in Dog Day Afternoon or do you think he could play do you think he could do is that my daughter in there the Sean Penn scene from Mystic River those sort of like just completely lose control absolutely go to 12 out of 10 on the, the the energy scale
1: I think he can I mean I think I think he has that in him and he doesn't always he doesn't always do it and maybe the closest that that we see him get is with that scene in the bathroom in 25th hour but yeah. but that is one that's a little more restrained in some ways but or when he is the literal hulk i guess that yes yes then also. then he goes i'd say the hulk usually goes to 12 uh <laughs> but um and, and i agree i think i think both of those actors have trended a sp- especially as they got older Yes. Um, towards more bombast and a little less restraint. But I think, I mean, I think you compare him to, I think he can definitely pull off the dog day, and, and that's a can, younger Pacino, and it's a little more modulated. You know, do, can, does he do heat? Maybe not. But. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. I do wonder, I mean, so I think he would struggle in a movie like I Am Sam. I don't know if either of you saw that, but Sean Penn but the it is such an emotionally heavy movie throughout. And I just that is the one part I like the Sean Penn comparison quite a bit. But I do think that Edward doesn't quite have the same ability to maintain like to, to carry a movie that is heavy and emotional. Right. He can
0: do the this the couple of scenes. Right. But if it's if it's through the entire thing, maybe Maybe it's also maybe he could, but maybe he would just never choose that role. Oh I, yeah, I mean, you know
1: what I mean.
2: That's probably true.
1: I mean, my opinion on that would be that uh, no one can do that role, and Sean Penn did not pull off that role. <laughs> that movie, and no yeah. one should do that role. Yeah, that movie <laughs> uh, is not one that I care for personally. Okay, well,
2: <laughs> I cried the whole
1: thing. So Sean Penn pulled so, it so off so for Sean, you, then.
2: Pulled it off. Okay. Yeah, I was utterly convinced.
0: So, so I've got I've got two. One is Marlon Brando, which I know everyone has compared him to him, but I like I do have a specific reason, and it comes a little bit from Brando's early work, especially Streetcar Named Desire, in which he does play someone who is completely unlikable and like a total asshole to his wife, and but then also he's just so magnetic, and pers- and he can just be incredibly. He can switch from being a complete jerk to persuading anyone to do literally anything. And I I didn't actually think of it outside of the context that I think a lot of people have talked about it a lot until I watched the score, which I hadn't seen before watching some some Norton performances for this podcast. But there is a scene in which. Marlon Brando's character, who is sort of, he's, so, um, Edward Norton gets pulled in to do a heist with Robert De Niro. For De Niro, it's one last heist. For Norton, he's the young guy who gets, he's the inside man at the customs house, uh, who can help get the, you know, get them in. And then Brando is basically the, like, quote unquote, godfather who organizes the heists in this Montreal community. And he's the one who, you know, match makes the two of them together. And, there is a scene in which early on Norton had been the arrogant jerk who like is, you know, the I, 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 you know, I can do anything. I'm the young guy. Like, why are you bringing in this old guy? Like, let's do this. And De Niro's like, all right, guy, like let's be cautious about this. That's how I've made it 30 years in this industry. And Norton has to go to him and con- after being like a complete, douchebag has to convince him to do the job and he completely switches modes. And it's like, I've got a lot to learn from you, man. Like, but I need you on this job. And then later in the movie, when De Niro's about to bail on the job, Brando does the exact same thing. He goes from being the completely unlikable crime figure who like only cares about money and doesn't care about people to like, look, we've worked together for a long time. I need, do me this favor. I'm, I owe people money and I need you right now. Like he's desperate, but in that way that you can't tell him no. And they both seem to have the, these like switches they can flip where they go from being pretty smarmy or pretty slimy to having these magnetic characters that can convince anyone to do anything. So that 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 was the big comparison. I also thought about James Cameron just because I've heard he is like a perfectionist on set and can be difficult to work with. But the Brando one was the one that I, I felt more strongly about.
1: All right. How about uh, how about any fun, fun, hypotheticals about Birdman?
2: Well, this is a hypothetical slash fact. Uh, did you know that Birdman had an alternate ending? No. Dun dun dun. Yeah. Well, this is according to Wikipedia, so take it for what That's it's true. Worth. It must be true. So the film's ending changed halfway through filming. So the original ending intended to depict Johnny Depp of Pirates of the Caribbean. That becomes relevant shortly. So this
0: was just Fantastic Beasts where Johnny Depp pops up at the end of the movie?
2: Yes, exactly. So in the alternate ending, Johnny Depp was going to be in Riggins' dressing room with a Pirates of the Caribbean poster in the background. And in Jack Sparrow's voice, the poster was going to ask Johnny Depp what the fuck are we doing here, mate? Wow. That's my Didn't know if you were going to do the voice, but you <laughs> nailed it. But the point was to be that, you know, this is just like an endless loop, right? Every actor is going to go through this at some point. Once they've had their, like, illustrious career and it's over, they'll be left standing in front of the mirror with, like, the famous shell of themselves in the background kind of looming. Um, which I actually don't think is as bad as Inuritu apparently thought halfway through. He, he said that the ending was embarrassing and was like, we must do something different. So, um, yeah, so thoughts on that. Would the movie have struck you any differently if it had ended that way?
0: So was it, what does that cut off? Does that cut off the final performance and the gunshot and everything, him in the hospital? Or does he show up like in his hospital room?
2: It's unclear. I think it would have been after the hospital room, okay. Oh no, the original ending was set in the theater instead of the hospital.
0: Interesting. So oh, if, wait, no, if 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 they was the
2: original ending, yeah. So I don't know what they would have cut off.
0: So I the the one thing I will say is that I thought that having the ending where he shoots himself and then uh, Tabitha, the art critic, gives him an amazing review and talks about hyperrealism, I thought that was a very good way to close out the thematic arc of how actors are constantly searching for the truth and artists are searching for the truth. And it was like the logical conclusion of that taken to its extreme is the truth just becomes you literally shoot yourself if that's what the scene says to do. And having the art critic love it was like a very satirical exclamation point to that theme. And so I liked that part of it. So if they had taken that out, I would have missed
1: that. But The the other thing that I think the movie does pretty well and it is a smart choice is that obviously Michael Keaton is you can see him as playing Michael Keaton Birdman is Batman etc you can see Edward Norton is playing a version of himself but it, it is all versions of themselves i the movie doesn't really make external actual pop culture references at least not not very many and that lets it age a lot better i think if a current actor and an actual current role show up that hurts the film it hurts the film's staying power more than anything it it sets it up as a little more of a time capsule that may not be able to to stand the test of time the way i think this movie this movie does to to a certain extent
0: yeah i think it would have been really funny and fun in the moment and then on rewatch i would have been like oh that's okay it was fun the first time when Johnny Depp just showed up, but like yeah. Got
1: old pretty quickly. Here's my yeah. my ancillary hype out of that. Would it still win best picture?
2: Oh, interesting.
1: I can't remember the politics around Johnny Depp
0: in twenty fifteen.
2: <laughs> Same. I think so. Uh actually I don't know. Now you have me questioning. Endings are
0: really important to a lot of people. I mean, they are. They're what you're left with. And they're so hard to pull off. And I think for the most part, this ending does pull it off. But maybe, maybe not.
2: Well, maybe because it's so close in time to Pirates of the Caribbean and like everyone still loves that movie. Maybe it would still win. But then, as you said, Carson, in the future, people would be like, why did this movie win?
0: (laughs) Pirates of the Caribbean is timeless. People will love that movie in a hundred years.
2: I mean, I don't dispute that.
0: Okay. So I think we've landed on just being extremely pro Pirates of the Caribbean. Maybe the Johnny Depp thing was probably better left out. So, so my hypothetical is which actor who is, plays a superhero, either, you know, DC, Marvel, whatever, has played a superhero, is going to find themselves in the situation that Reagan was in. They're going to, they're going to be forever connected to that superhero. They can't find good roles. And so they launch their own Broadway show, write the whole thing or, you know, write the adaptation and try to direct it and star in it. And it, maybe doesn't go so well uh, and they get left out on the streets of new york city in nothing but their underwear
2: that's so easy it's toby Maguire.
0: <laughs> yeah
2: a hundred percent there's no doubt
0: in yeah. my mind I, I was gonna i was gonna go with ben affleck
2: yeah but, but he's, he's been in <laughs> like the way back you know i mean he's picked up some work he's <laughs> dating anna darmas that so, is like, true he's doing fun he's picked up
0: a lot of work on like twitter and instagram
2: right right yeah yeah
1: I think it could be Jennifer Lawrence. I think she, she just got really fed up with, with all of it and, uh, and then hasn't worked that much recently. So maybe she's in the process of prepping her her big Broadway directing and starring debut.
0: How and so, she, so she just may go that route young. She may mm-hmm. be like, I have to somehow make a clean break from my past this early. I'm going down a road I don't want to go down. So I'm interested none of us named people in the MCU. Do we feel like that's just, it has such an unassailable reputation that we don't think like Mark Ruffalo is just really going to go downhill?
2: My theory on Mark Ruffalo is... That he's perfect. No, that's your theory. My theory is anyone who is in the movie Margaret is doing just great. And they're going to keep doing great for the rest of time. And so that includes Mark Ruffalo. That includes Matt Damon, Allison Janney. I mean, yeah. you know, Anna Paquin. Just as top, we all know, she she won early. the Irishman. So. <laughs> exactly. so that's why I went. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyways, yeah. I
1: I think I mean I think that's that, that's actually kind of an interesting question. I think it speaks to the what being in these superhero movies means now, right? I mean, I think when Michael Keaton was in. Batman that was one of the the earliest superhero movies and it was very much a this this comic actor is going to be Batman everybody was furious about it and then obviously he becomes just revered as as this character and and it was a much it was a bigger deal for an actor to to do that now it's just kind of part of the job it seems it, it's you know you you do well you're successful, you go off and do a Marvel movie or whatever but it's not it's not your whole thing it's just you're a famous actor you're probably in the Marvel movie, and it's kind of an easy in and out in a way that maybe it wasn't as much back then.
0: To that point, I wonder if maybe the one person who is so identified with their character that it could actually happen to would be Robert Downey Jr. Like, he was Iron Man. He was, like, the Marvel Universe for 11 years. And he had just kind of revived his career over the last five years before that movie. And what may have led to a bunch of Oscar, you know, additional Oscar nominated performances and like really building up, rebuilding up that resume instead went the comic book route. Maybe now he's left in like a no man's land where like not enough people remember Tropic Thunder and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And they just see him as Iron Man that he actually struggles to return back to that if he wants to. And like has to do something that's more like proving his worth as an artist.
1: You kind of have to have in a way to be able to get out of that, some sort of creative control, and, uh, and and we'll see if that's something he's really interested in. I think even an analog to him is Hugh Jackman, who became really associated with Wolverine over the course of about a decade, a similarly long span. But he. But then he really... made the greatest
0: showman, and everyone remembered that he is perfect.
1: Yes, exactly, right. and he really Just pushes. Like, yeah. The, he has this other passion, like this passion for pushing musicals um, and sure. starring in musicals. And sure. so that, that helps him. And I'm, I'm curious whether Downey Jr. is going to have that because it seems like Doolittle, maybe not.
0: <laughs> yeah, that one goes so great. All right. So is it time to pick which auteur category we would put Ed Norton in? I,
1: I think so. What do you guys have?
2: Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, I was torn between the perfectionist and the realist categories. Uh, Now, we haven't really talked about him in the realist sense much. We've kind of focused more on the perfectionism. But if you take a look at some of the movies he's done, especially more recently, a lot of them are uh, wrestling with issues that are relevant to today's world. And that is something that he, um, I think it was in a GQ interview, maybe. He said that he really finds that he's drawn to pieces that reflect the realism of the world around him. And that really, I think, informs his choices in collaborating with different directors and in acting in different roles. So those were the two that I'm stuck between. I think I would probably go with the perfectionist just because that is the sort of attitude I see him having throughout his career, where the realism, I think, you know, starting off with like Primal Fear and The Italian Job and movies like that aren't, aren't quite as in the realist category. So I think I think I fall on the perfectionist.
0: Although that. I was actually like, I think you made a good argument for the realist, but I do love the idea of putting the illusionist in the realist category.
2: I mean, magic big, is real. Fan of
0: I mean, no, I fully
1: agree. Carson, what do you think? I, I think that's a really good point about... Realism, Sarah, and I hadn't, I hadn't considered that too too carefully, but but I really like how you how you pitched that. I couldn't get away from the perfectionist that just seems to define him. Clearly, there is the behind the scenes stuff, which which is hard to separate, but you do get the sense that 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 is critical to what he does. Just having to really have control over his performance and how it goes out in the world and even how the movie goes out in the world so much so that he you know started as an actor but pretty quickly became a writer and director it seems like because he really felt so strongly about having control over the integrity of the piece uh that that I find it hard to to put him somewhere else
0: all right i'm going to swim upstream i'm going to i'm going to make the case here for something else which is that so as as a person i see him as a perfectionist and like in his career, but as his acting style, I make the pitch for him being a film jock. When it comes down to it, he has played four or five roles in which he literally plays like two different people with two completely different personalities, especially early in his career. Primal Fear, Fight Club. In the score, he plays like, you know, he plays a completely different person in order to get on the inside of the custom house as as compared to his normal personality. And in American History X, especially because it jumps between timelines, you're seeing two completely different versions of the same person right next to each other. And he really seems to prefer to take roles that allow him to stretch the limits of his acting abilities and allow him to show off what he can do. And that, I just see that as like one of the through lines in his style of acting is that even if it's not showy in the classical sense, he's doing something that's really unique and new in every role uh, in trying to show how good he, of an actor he is.
2: Solid pitch. I'm not sold. Cause I just think he's so perfectionist in his like creativity that it's hard to get over that.
0: No, I think it's perfect. But... I, I think it's perfectionist too. I, I, I want to see almost, if I can convince you guys.
1: <laughs> I was almost entirely sold personally. I was, I was actually ready to totally throw in with Zach.
0: I mean, I, I'm pretty, I'm genuinely split between both, but I think it's tough to justify not doing perfectionist.
1: Yep. That makes sense. Sounds good. All right. It's time for the Letterboxd game. So as a reminder, each of us will pick one actor or crew member from the film we discussed in this case, Birdman, and the other two will have to guess that actor or crew members top three highest rated films on Letterboxd. Feature films, no TV, no unreleased movies. We won't include Birdman and we'll give plenty of hints if folks get stopped. Zach, you want to start us off?
0: Yeah, we're going to go with Naomi Watts.
1: All right, Sarah.
2: Well, I just watched Mulholland Drive for the first time recently, so I think she's in that.
1: That feels like a slam dunk number one. So I say we we Uh, guess Mulholland Drive. Let's do it. Mulholland
0: Drive is number one of the eligible movies Mm. behind Twin Peaks The Return, which is not eligible because it is television. I'm sorry.
1: Is Birdman in the top Three, Birdman
0: is number two of eligible films. Okay. Okay. Number four overall. Number three is the making of Mulholland Drive. Sure. <laughs> I decided to not count.
1: <laughs> so okay, so we got number one of eligible yes. films, and uh, Birdman would be number two. So we still have two more. Oh, and- sorry.
0: Uh, I, I believe also we do normally give you the rating. So Mulholland Drive is four point two.
2: Woof.
0: And I will give you Birdman. That is three point nine. Well, okay.
2: So the only two other roles that I am confident could be up there would be King Kong and Vice.
1: King Kong, I thought of. I don't know how, how well-liked that movie is. Vice, I feel like, actually, I don't know. I can never quite tell with Letterboxd. She's, oh, yeah. she's in the impossible, right? That, uh, you would
2: know that. I her, can
0: confirm I she's in that. I had never heard
1: of that movie until this second. Yeah. We could guess
0: King Kong.
2: Sarah. Okay, it was popular at least. Yeah, I like that movie. That doesn't mean, yeah. <laughs> 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 All King, right. King, King Kong.
0: King Kong, I'm not going to count eligible films, but it's 23rd overall with Ugh. a 3.4. Oh,
2: yikes. Oh, wait, okay. sorry.
0: Nope, that is the making of King Kong.
2: Oh, God, it's lower.
0: <laughs> King Kong <laughs> is 27th with a 3.3. 3.
2: People the- liked the
0: documentary more <laughs> than the actual movie.
2: You know you know when
0: that's thing. That's
2: tough. Okay. I feel like Naomi is hard because I she pops up in a bunch of movies, but she does, she's not really like a main character very often. Oh, we just watched a movie that she was in recently.
0: Besides Mulholland's Drive.
2: I think so. All right. Oh, so, Birdman. No. I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> all right. So we have we've we've had a couple misses, so it's time for your first hint. Okay. I'm just going to give you a hint for the next film. Your letterbox ratings for the number two eligible film. Carson, you gave this movie a four. Sarah, you gave this movie a four. I gave this movie a four.
1: Okay. We've all seen it. I bet it's a recent movie. Movie. Yeah.
0: On Letterboxd, in this movie, she is top billed. Now, I would not have thought she would be top billed. I would have thought she would be like a second or third, but she is. Top build on Letterboxd. Now, I'm not sure what algorithm they use, but...
2: Wasn't she in that movie... Oh, this can't be it, though. With, like, the about the typhoons? Or, like, she and a kid are, like...
1: I think that's the impossible.
2: Oh, is it? Okay, okay.
1: Which I don't remember if people like. I, I haven't seen either. it, so... It's not that. It's not the one that, that Zach is referring to.
0: Of the people I follow on Letterboxd... The range of scores for The Impossible it goes between one and a half stars and five stars.
2: Oh, good, helpful. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay.
1: Maybe we guess The Impossible. It could be that the third one.
2: I mean, I'm I'm struggling to think of other movies. I, I say we go for it.
0: All right, The Impossible is overall 16th.
2: Oof. Mm.
0: Though I I have to say, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of the first like 15 aren't eligible, so. It's, it's top seven or eight of the eligible films. The score for The Impossible is a 3.5.
2: Okay, so we have all seen Vice.
0: I'm going to go ahead and give you another hint. Okay. Yes. In addition, I'm going to give you a double hint. One is not super helpful, but will at least be marginally useful, and that is that you have not mentioned this movie. Okay. You have not mentioned either movie that remains in the top three. But uh, a hint for this movie is that I know for a fact that both of you watched this movie as part of a movie month that we have done in the past with friends. So you watched several all by one director.
2: Hmm. Carson, what directors have you done for movie month movies?
1: It's a good question. We did a lot of them.
2: What what ones would I have watched though? It couldn't have been in anything scary because I wouldn't have watched that.
0: I'm thinking. This movie has a very famous nudity scene. Does not include Naomi Watts.
2: Titanic.
0: <laughs> a, an absolutely one of a kind, <laughs> the only of its kind nudity scene. The nude person is doing oh, something that wait. nude people often don't do.
1: Doing something that nude people usually don't do.
0: Yeah, this person was caught by surprise in a sauna where they were nude.
2: Okay, in a sauna.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, yes. Ah! And he gets killed, right? Well, shot or something in the no. sauna. No, close. I remember a bloody body on the floor. Carson, what movie is
1: that? Yes.
2: Is it like Viggo Morton? Yes.
1: Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, yes, yes. What is uh, it? It's Eastern Promises. Okay.
0: Yes, it is. Thank and you. she's first billed on Letterboxd in Eastern Promises. I don't
2: remember her being in that movie.
1: That's odd.
0: Yeah, it's very odd. That's not, That's yeah. Oh. Uh, she plays Anna Ivanovna Kitrova.
1: Okay. I mean, she is probably like a co-lead. Yes, with yes. Vigo in that movie. Yes, and he is famously has a nude fight, fight scene. Fight scene. Yes, yes,
2: yes, exactly. He is nude in at least two movies. He at has least. no problem yeah. getting yeah.
0: getting unclothed. Yep. Equal opportunity. All right. So the third movie is one that, according to Letterboxd, neither of you have seen.
2: Okay, that's
0: But I know that at least one of you has heard of this movie, and you know this movie, and you definitely both know the director. It is part of an unofficial trilogy, and several movies in that trilogy uh, were not in the English language. Uh, and this director is, in fact, from not from the United States. Hmm. The director has one best director, though. Yeah. And is not from the United States, which should be helpful in narrowing.
2: Alfonso Cuarón.
1: Yeah, I, I'm trying to think if it's... Warone or Oh, is she in is she in
0: Babel? No. But that is one of a trilogy. Okay. From a Mexican director. So it is. Who we know likes her.
1: Oh, yes. um, I do know it. It's uh uh it's twenty one grams. It is. It is oh. twenty-one grams.
2: Is that the movie about Will Smith's soul?
0: That is No, that is seven, seven pounds. pounds.
2: <laughs> okay. Look, map isn't. Which I, like I don't drugs. even think
0: is roughly equivalent <laughs> to 21 grams.
2: I don't And I'm know. also not
1: sure. I have no idea. Six
2: grams is in an ounce, I think. So, oh, so not even close. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, that was uh that was pretty tough. Sarah, what do you got?
2: All right. So uh we're gonna do Amy Ryan. Okay. I will go ahead and tell you because we can't include it, that Birdman is her number one movie.
0: Shoot, and we know Birdman has three point nine. Mm-hmm. So we've got some she hasn't been in some, you know, any four point oh movies. That's such a bummer. She's so good. She
1: is so yeah. good. Yeah, because Amy deserves better. I assumed that Gone Baby Gone might be a four Me, Me too. So yeah. I yeah. think that should be. Yeah, that's my first guess. yes, agreed. Gone yes. Baby Gone.
2: That is number three. Okay. And it is a three point seven. Okay. On letterboxed.
0: Serves to be higher, but. We'll let it slide. Okay. So, what else is H- she's in the Lost Girls? That's I don't think that got higher uh-huh. than three point seven. Is she in the Truman Capote biopic.
1: I know Katherine Keener is, and I don't remember if Amy Ryan is. I thought she was. She might be. We could get. I mean, we can guess Capote and find was out. That,
0: would that be higher than a three point seven?
1: It would be in that range. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. We could guess it. I have what no else idea. I'm struggling. I'm I'm also struggling. Mostly so. thinking of TV that she yeah. was in. Yeah, so we'll we'll guess Capote.
2: That would be correct. Capote right. is her number four if you include Birdman. Okay. It is a three point seven.
0: Okay. So tied, okay. So
2: tied. Yep.
0: So we got Capote and we got
1: Gone baby beyond, Gone. Right. Uh-huh. And there's one missing. higher than that.
2: Yes, correct.
0: Hmm. I honestly don't know what else she was in.
2: So this movie includes Someone who was in Margaret.
0: Wow, that's a crucial <laughs> distinction. Did either of us rate it on Letterbust?
2: Um, Carson Cook wrote a review. Wow.
0: He gave it four hmm. and a
2: half stars.
0: Did he specifically mention Amy Ryan's performance in the review?
2: He said, "Oh, this would probably give." That. <laughs> um, <laughs> Zach Damico also rated it four point five stars. Wow.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's see what
2: other someone in Margaret. I give you the director acts in the movie as well I believe, spike lee? I believe he's acted in a couple of his movies like shown up
0: interesting okay let us brainstorm for a yeah, bit yeah, before you yeah. yeah. give us more clues yeah okay she's not in a spike lee movie is she
1: no i don't think so like is it is it a matt damon movie that's kind of my damon or ruffalo maybe yeah
0: what movie have they the, the director appearing in multiple other movies including this one feels like the Most specific helpful clue
1: we've gotten. I think Lonergan has like shown up. Yes. Wait,
0: I think she's in You Can Count On Me. That has Mark Ruffalo.
1: Correct. And Uh, that
0: has Kenneth Lonergan.
1: Yeah. Did I write a review of that movie? I don't know. And that
0: movie rules. I definitely gave that movie four and a half stars.
1: Same. Uh, All right, let's guess it. All right, You Can Count On Me. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. Nice. Yes. Uh,
2: you both good saw clues. it Over two years ago, it's a three point nine star movie, and Carson Cook says, "I'm not sure there's any filmmaker working today whose movies feel more like great novels."
1: Hmm, that's a good review. That's
2: a great review. That's a yeah. good
0: review. I was about to yeah. be like, I do not. I would not want my Letterbox Review no, laid was, out on this. I was, I
1: was getting ready to you. cut it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good review. Good work. Yeah, it was.
1: All the right. Final round. final round. We're gonna. We're gonna go off the actor path, and I'm gonna give you cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubetsky. And I will tell you off the bat that Birdman is his third highest rated movie on Letterboxd. So you'll need one, two, and four. Okay. Okay.
0: So he's worked with Inner e
2: Okay.
0: And Cuaron. Okay. Did Letterboxd like The Revenant? You didn't have like the to Revenant. be sure. I never saw The Revenant. Oh, that's and right. I, I just it. didn't like it.
2: I didn't <laughs> like it either. <laughs> I'm
0: projecting onto you. I think I just, I think I told you that you wouldn't like it. So just not even to see it.
2: I mean, we're not going to, we're going to have to agree to disagree because I hated it from the moment I first saw the trailer. Okay.
0: So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough.
2: Has he done work with? He's
0: done, he's done work with Quaron, which would be okay. like, Y Mama Tambien, children of men gravity oh. i can't remember if he did gravity but i know he did the first two he didn't do roma because i feel like
2: butterbox loves E2 mama's hand yeah
0: and children of men for sure I mean, for
2: sure yeah you want to guess both, both? Of those? just a double guess let's right do off it. the bat double yeah. shot i mean why not let's do Maybe it we have to lose nothing integrity
1: that is number one and number two
2: let's yes! go oh crush
1: at 4.2 okay. for children of men and 4.1 for each and Hambian.
2: wow nice good work letterbox
1: his entire top three is going to be higher rated than amy ryan's entire filmography i know justice Seth, for Seth
2: amy times.
0: yeah put her in in achieve a Chivo movie
1: that's what we're all doing. right so let's maybe maybe you guys can get this without any hints so <laughs> that is a good guess
2: what other directors has he worked with do
0: you know? Not any that he's worked with like okay, so oh, he made Tree of Life.
2: Oh. And I don't
0: remember nice if he's done other Malik's. And then I wanna say he's worked with the Cohen brothers, but I have no idea what movie. Okay. Let's And then I can't remember if he did Gravity. Tree of
2: Life feels like a good guess. And yeah. gravity does. And gravity, too. those
0: are our two yeah. good guesses. Should we guess both of those and say Another we're getting the top four? Guess.
2: No, let's just guess one. Oh, pick one. Okay, yeah. let's tree of life right. tree of life tree of life
1: tree of life is number 5 overall
2: Oof. okay so
1: okay so we were one away one away what is the rating 3.8
0: wow i guess there's some like divisive like there's some split reaction the people who love it love it and then
1: i'm i'm also a little surprised that it's only at a 3.8 yeah. okay mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Um, what about gravity yeah let's do it yeah gravity
1: gravity is at a 3.6 oh and
2: Uh-oh.
1: is number We're nine nine overall all right we need some hints. okay Yep. all right time so your hint is zach has seen this movie but not rated it on letterboxd and sarah has not logged it on letterboxd at all well,
2: I'm, I'm not gonna be of any help on this one
0: you may have seen it. You don't go back
2: and yeah, right. click watch back watched though. for,
0: so that that means it's a movie I saw before I got letterboxed, or one that just totally flopped me and I didn't rate it. But I usually you feel enough shame list. to rate everything yeah. <laughs> eventually, even if it's
1: a couple of months later.
2: Okay, another. Cool yeah, <laughs>
1: <clip>. <laughs> right. I'm cool on that. I have seen this movie and given it three stars.
2: Ooh, okay, that's helpful.
1: It makes me nervous that it might not be a Coen Brothers movie, which I had thought.
0: He did one. That's probably true. And actually person loves the Corner Brothers.
2: Yeah.
0: Not to say he couldn't give one of their films three stars.
2: It just doesn't deserve three stars.
0: <laughs> you also love the, I Coen also brother. love the
2: Coen Brothers. <laughs> yeah. What are other NRE two movies that you would have done?
0: Or I don't know if he shot Babel or Twenty One Grams or Amores Peros.
2: Well we know twenty one grams is low.
0: Oh yeah. And what mm-hmm. I think well, Tree of Life was four or five or whatever and it was only three point eight. Yeah. So it could be like a three point nine or three point eight even tied. Yeah. True. Where was, Bird, where was Birdman? It was three overall. Three
1: overall. With and we're three, missing
0: four overall.
1: And Birdman okay. was a 3.9.
0: 3.9. So we know it's okay. between 3.9 and 3.8.
2: Okay.
0: Where was 21 grams? It was lower than that. Way yeah, lower, it was yeah. 3.6, I think.
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: Babel won some awards or was nominated. I think it was nominated for Best Picture. Huh. But I also feel like people, it was one of those that were like, people didn't like it as much as the Academy did.
2: So like a green book.
0: Not quite that level, <laughs>
1: I, don't, I don't think. But, but that, that could be a decent guess. People I follow have given this a rating between one and a half and five stars.
2: Super. Okay. That's pretty mm. unhelpful.
0: I don't feel like Coen Brothers movies have that level of divisiveness. Yeah. Agreed. But you know whose movies do have that level? Whose? T- Malik. So if he oh, made another Malik,
2: it could be what are of Knight it? of
0: Cups. I don't know if it, maybe he made... Malik has two that were very well-received. Thin Red Line mm-hmm. and The New World. Oh. Correct.
2: Um, Should
0: we just get another clue? Yeah, let's get another clue. Or do we need to get one wrong
1: to get another clue? No, take a, yeah, take
2: a guess. Okay, let's see Thin Red Line.
1: Okay, Thin Red Line. It is not The Thin Red Line. He did not shoot that movie. All right, this movie won at least one Oscar.
2: Ooh, okay. In any category,
1: I will say this movie won at least one major Oscar. I would like to request a hint,
0: specific hint.
1: Okay. Have we
0: mentioned the movie yet? Yes.
1: Ah, uh, I don't know what
0: I wanted the answer to world. be. I don't, I don't, don't know, what know what major that Oscar is. that would have won, yeah, exactly. except for maybe Best Cinematography.
2: Saying. But I don't so maybe remember. Babel. Yeah. Did it win anything? I don't remember. I don't know either.
1: The New Babel World. <laughs> uh, both, both wrong.
2: Both wrong. Okay.
1: Does not look. Does not it. look like he made Babel. But I will tell you, the new, the new world is seven. Overall, oh, okay. uh, Ooh, okay. With but a, he didn't shoot Babel. And he didn't shoot Babel. New okay. World has a three point seven overall, and I gave that movie five stars.
2: Ooh, yeah. I nice. remember I never saw. That's
0: it. why I thought the Malik might be like the big range.
2: We haven't mentioned any Coen Brothers movies, so it can't be that
0: right we just mentioned them in general
2: yeah
0: this movie oh is it the revenant did we guess did we end up guessing the revenant if it's The revenant i'm gonna be so mad
2: okay is it the
0: revenant it is the revenant i'm I'm not mad because of i'm mad because we mentioned it and forgot about it and didn't guess it i'm not
1: i i thought you guys were gonna get it one two three uh those are the first three movies you talked about
0: about it oh stupid that's stupid but yeah of course i
1: won a major award i won leo and director and 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 cinematography (laughs) jesus wow uh but the revenant yeah has a long strike tough finish apparently it is it's a 3.8 but the letterbox algorithm has it above the tree of life which very much surprises me
0: almost got the big bang bang boom the tie me too Lame.
1: burn after reading is the cohen brothers one oh. he did
0: okay cool oh,
1: um and he did several other Maliks, including knight of cups and To the wonder but those are uh, pretty far down nah. yeah
0: so that's the letterboxd game sarah what'd you think
2: great great fun is it as good as cinephiles i don't know well but i mean, it's, it's up there that's up a high there. bar that's a high bar indeed
0: well thank you for joining us on this episode
2: thanks so much for having me
1: yeah. Thanks for joining Sarah and everyone. Thanks for listening and join us next week for our episode on Spike Lee, where we'll be talking about his latest movie to five bloods and be sure to check out
0: all of our Spike Lee spotlight month content on rough cuts website.